Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me tonight to 2 Chronicles in chapter 35. We are considering this entire chapter, so bear with me as we make our way through a lengthy reading. Before we read the Word of the Lord again, let's ask God's help in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come yearning to hear from You, yearning to receive the instruction that You give, knowing that Your Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it pierces us in the heart. Lord, would You use Your Word tonight to pierce us? Would You use it to sanctify us? And would You show us wonderful things in Your law? For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, this is the Word of God, Second Chronicles 35. Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the fourteenth day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. And he said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house that Solomon the son of David, king of Israel, built. You need not carry it on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and His people, Israel. Prepare yourselves, <clears throat> excuse me, prepare yourselves according to your fathers' houses by your divisions, as prescribed in the writing of David, king of Israel, and the document of Solomon his son. And stand in the holy place according to the groupings of the fathers' houses of your brothers, the lay people, and according to the division of the Levites by fathers' households. And slaughter the Passover lamb. And consecrate yourselves and prepare for your brothers to do according to the word of the Lord by Moses. Then Josiah contributed to the lay people as Passover offerings for all who were present, lambs and young goats from the flock to the number of 30,000 and 3,000 bulls. These were from the king's possessions. And his officials contributed willingly to the people, to the priests, and to the Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, Jehiel, the chief officers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 Passover lambs and 300 bulls. Conaniah also, Shemaiah, and Nathanel, his brothers, and Hashabiah, and Jael, and Jazabad, the chiefs of the Levites, gave to the Levites for the Passover offerings 5,000 lambs and young goats and 500 bulls. When the service had been prepared for the priests, excuse me, when the service had been prepared for, the priests stood in their place, and the Levites in their divisions according to the king's command. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb. And the priests threw the blood that they received from them, while the Levites flayed the sacrifices. And they set aside the burnt offerings, that they might distribute them according to the groupings of the fathers' houses of the way people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did with the bulls. And they roasted the Passover lamb with fire according to the rule. And they boiled the holy offerings in pots, in cauldrons, and in pans, and carried them quickly to all the lay people. And afterward, they prepared for themselves and for the priests, because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were offering the burnt offerings and the fat parts until night. So the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 
were in their place according to the command of David, and Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun the king's seer, and the gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not need to depart from their service, for their brothers the Levites prepared for them. So all the service of the Lord was prepared that day to keep the Passover, to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord, according to the command of King Josiah. And the people of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days. No Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the eighteenth year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. And Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died, and he was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his good deeds, according to what is written in the law of the Lord, and his acts, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Well, thus far, God's holy word, and may he bless it to our hearts tonight. In our study together of Chronicles, though we're coming to the end and recognize the bottom is about to fall out, disaster looms for this people. Nevertheless, Josiah has been a bright spot. He's a man with a tender heart towards the Lord. He sought the Lord earnestly. He strikes down corruption comprehensively. He's devoted to Yahweh fully. He searches out what God says and he's ready to do it. Josiah is the most David-like king that we've seen in the whole book. But while the promise that the Lord gave to David still hangs in the air, a forever king from David's line, we discern by the end of this chapter that Josiah is not that greater David. One thing our author has done for us in recounting the lives of the kings of Judah is to show us their highs and their lows, to point out their failings. And we can think of this with a number of kings. He showed us Asa who served the Lord and sought him, but he refused to seek the Lord at the end of his life in his sickness. Jehoshaphat cared about the law of God being applied to the people, but he was willing to unite with Ahab's rotten house. Uzziah set himself to seek the Lord, but he got too big for his britches and tried to take the priest's place 
On and on this goes. And now we see that Josiah simply fits the same mold. His heights of religious devotion are higher than those before him, but he still comes short of being the Savior. He's a lowly sinner. But we're going to note two things as we make our way through the chapter. A supreme high followed by a supreme low. First, I want you to see with me a great day. A great day in verses 1-19. to Now, this is a big section to cover in one point, so it will be longer. But I want you to notice how the author wraps the narrative by telling us of Josiah keeping the Passover. It's a literary device called an inclusio. We see it in verse 1. Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And then we see it again in verse 19. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. So all eyes are turned on the Passover. And the time marker in verse 19 is significant. The 18th year, 18th year of Josiah's reign, that's the year that they found the book of Deuteronomy. That's the same year that Josiah immediately sent ambassadors to discover from the prophetess what was to become of God's people because he knew curses were to fall. And the sense of the text is, as soon as Huldah prophesies Yahweh's coming disaster, but the Lord's mercy to delay it until Josiah is gone, that moment immediately Josiah wants to show his devotion to the Lord. Now we saw his comprehensive loyalty at the end of the last chapter, how he took away all the abominations from all the territory and made all Israel serve the Lord. All his days they didn't turn away from the Lord. So Josiah just carries out that same loyalty by celebrating the Passover. You see, when he heard the Word of God, he wants to do the Word of God. And brethren, isn't that the mark of faithfulness? The chronicler is stressing to his audience, you can't simply hear the Word of God read to you and taught to you and say you belong to God and then fail to do what He says. Fail to conform your life to what is written. Jesus will make the same point to the Jewish leadership in His own day who claim that they are the, the Lord's people. They are the sheep of the true shepherd. But then Jesus tells us what sheep do. Sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and you are not a sheep. Hearers of the Word, that's not sufficient. You have to be a hearer and a doer. And if you don't do, you're deceived. That's the point I think the author is already pressing and it's a pattern, brethren, we should ask. Do, do we see that in our own lives? Are we as earnest as Josiah is to listen to what God has to say and then to implement it? Will we guard our lives by the Word of God? Will we plead, Lord, don't let me wander from Your commandments? Because that's what faithfulness looks like. So Josiah has heard of this great Passover feast and what God requires, and he determines to institute it right now. It just so happens that there's time to do it the right way. Now, about a hundred years ago in the story here, there was a great Passover celebration under Hezekiah. But they had to celebrate Passover a month late because there weren't priests prepared to do it the right way. That's not how it will be done here. Verse 1 relates, they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the first month which is precisely what the law had required. And there's a repeated stress in this larger passage really on, on two fundamental things. Preparation and following what is prescribed. 
preparation and following what is prescribed, doing it by the book. Now I want to highlight this for us. Note how Josiah is getting everybody ready. Verse 2, He, the king, appointed the priests to their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. Now you can imagine if the priests didn't have Deuteronomy, they'd probably been corrupted in all kinds of ways, not following what God said. They had been filled with idolatrous practices. They were negligent in paying attention to the law. So now Josiah encourages them to do it God's way. He calls them to their duty and he calls them to pay attention to the book. And then he brings reform also to the Levites. The Levites are the teachers in Israel. They have the responsibility to instruct the people of God in what the Word says and then model holiness. Likewise, if they don't have Deuteronomy, they're probably not very good teachers and they probably don't model holiness. So he exhorts them to fulfill their responsibility. But then notice also, it's kind of a weird thing in verse 3, for reasons we don't know, the Levites were carrying around the ark. And Josiah commands them to put it back and stop carrying it on their shoulders. Now, just for fun, I want you to note that this little verse wrecks the whole premise of one of the great adventure stories of my lifetime. In 1981, the emerging megastar, fresh off two blockbusters playing the role of Han Solo, Harrison Ford starts a new character. Do you remember who it is? Yeah, Indiana Jones, the new flick, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And in the movie, the Nazis, everybody can hate them, right? They're hunting for a supernatural power to put forward their plans of domination. And specifically, they're looking for the Ark of the Covenant, believing that no enemy can stand before it. Well, in the discussion about why the Nazis want the Ark, Dr. Jones, interestingly, chastises the U.S. officials who've come to see him. Didn't you guys go to Sunday school? Nobody would write that line in our culture. Don't you guys know what the Bible has to say about this issue? Well, the whole narrative obviously is saying something about that movie is right. The Ark went missing. That's true. We have no idea where the Ark went. But one theory floated was that Pharaoh Shishak, under the reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam, had taken the Ark back to Egypt. Well, surprise, surprise, George Lucas, who wrote the script for Indiana Jones, got it wrong. He listened to the advice of academics on theories and just didn't read 2 Chronicles 35. The ark, which we haven't heard a word about since Solomon's days, is still there. Now that's important. The ark is the symbol of God's presence. It's a token of God's footstool signifying that the Lord reigns and He dwells among His people. But of course, the ark was permanently placed in the temple indicating that God was permanently dwelling with a stable people who are no longer wandering in the wilderness. So why in the world are the Levites carrying around the ark? Thankfully, they're doing it properly using poles. There's no touching it, no ox carts, no ominous deaths. Did they remove the ark from the Holy of Holies to do temple repair work? Did they carry around the ark because they believed it was a, a rabbit's foot of sorts to protect them? That's actually been tried before, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Was this some kind of symbolic reenactment of God moving to His temple to dwell there, like when Solomon's men first put it in the temple? We don't know. 
But whatever the case, Josiah orders the Levites, put the ark where it goes and do your job. End of verse 3. Now serve the Lord your God and His people Israel. Prepare yourselves. Do what God requires you to do. The washing needed. Ensuring no one unclean is coming before the people. I mean, coming before the Lord. Instruct the people. Do all this, verse 4, as prescribed in the writing of David. It was David who gave new tasks to the Levites. They're no longer to carry around the ark or all the instruments of the tabernacle furnishings. They were to be singers and gatekeepers and officials and teachers and servants to the priests. And here, brethren, our two themes are coming together. Get ready, prepare to do your job, and then do it as it's written. And these twin themes will just keep occurring. We see it in verse 6. The priests and Levites are assisting in slaughtering the lambs. And in Exodus, we perhaps remember that the head of the house was to slaughter the lamb, but what happens if he's not clean? What happens if the people have failed to do what God says? Well, the Levites and priests would have to step in and do all the bloody work that had happened in Hezekiah's day as well. So here, the Levites with the priests are slaughtering the lamb, but they're told, consecrate yourselves, verse 6, and prepare your brothers to do according to the word of the Lord by Moses. Preparation and prescription. Get yourself spiritually ready and do it exactly like God says. And then it just keeps popping up. We see it again in verse 10 as they prepare for the service and do it according to the king's command. We see it in verse 12 in the distribution of what is to be eaten. They're to pass it out according to the groupings of the fathers' houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. We see it again in verse 13. Do things according to the rule. I'm sure you're getting the point by now. But the verb prepared is used four more times. And there are two more times of, we have statements saying that the people followed David's direction and Josiah's direction about doing exactly what God says. What are we to glean from all this? Well, I think the chronicler is first making a point to his original audience, those after the exile, telling them, you cannot serve God without holiness, without preparation. And you cannot serve God if you fail to follow what He says. This is a major problem in the post-exilic days with Ezra's generation, with Nehemiah, the prophet Malachi, who will rebuke the people. He's writing about the same time as the chronicler. And they, the people have a lack of concern for holiness. In the days of Malachi, he will rebuke the priests for polluting worship. They are offering animals that are blind, lame, and sick. And they're not teaching the people in the fear of the name of God. Further, the people keep slipping away from purity of life, marrying with pagans. They keep not doing what God says. And the text serves, therefore, to call them to account. Josiah did what was right. This is honoring to God. But brethren, surely there's a message for us too. Yes, it's true, we don't follow the outward purity laws of the old covenant system, and we're probably very glad for that. But does that mean that we ignore necessary preparation to worship the Lord? Well, of course not. We are called to holiness. 1 Peter 1, Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, 
without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. We are called to have clean hands and a pure heart. We are called to come out from the world and touch no unclean thing. 2 Corinthians 6. Also, we're called to remember the work of Christ, our sacrifice, who, get this language, sprinkled our hearts clean from an evil conscience and washed our bodies with pure water. That's the Levitical language. Christ is our great high priest who brings us cleansing. So we have to come remembering Jesus, focusing our faith on Him that we would be accepted. And we can't come with our own ideas about what would be right in worship, making it up as we go along. God is seeking worshipers who worship Him in spirit and... What's the next word? Truth. Our hearts or our spirits are devoted to Him in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And we worship according to the truth. We follow what God says. We do what God prescribed. It is so easy to go beyond what is written. Israel did it repeatedly. The churches in the apostolic era also did it repeatedly. Paul warns the Corinthians that they are to learn from the apostles. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. To not go beyond what is written. Paul tells the Thessalonians, hold to the apostolic traditions. Paul tells Timothy and Titus, follow the pattern of sound words. He tells the Corinthians again, you can't come to the table any old way you like. You have to do it like the Lord said. I delivered to you what I also received. You see, God's people have a tendency to drift away from God's prescription, His direction from worship. But we must be diligent to give heed to the Word. Beloved, is the Word guiding our public worship, our private worship, our pursuits every day? Are we consecrated to God, eager to purify ourselves, and grateful for His grace? Do we have the mindset of Jesus who when tempted by the devil said to Him, He always started this way, it is written. His life will be governed by God's Word. That is the way to live. And as a leader for God's people, Josiah is not just setting forward a pattern of preparation and a pattern of following what's prescribed. Notice that he's leading the feast by modeling what is right. He wants to live by the book. And he recognizes the people aren't prepared to do that. Now, obviously, in the Passover celebration, the lay people were supposed to take a lamb, bring it into their house on the tenth day, and on the fourteenth day, sacrifice it. But God's worship has been so far removed from them, from the national consciousness, that no one is doing any of this. No one's ready to do this. So Josiah, of course, well, he could have just scrapped the whole thing. Ah, well, you know, we can't really do this the, the way that I would hope we would, so let's just forget about it. No. Having heard the Word of God, he wants to do it now. There's urgency to get busy worshiping God the right way. So how does he compensate for the lack of preparation in the people? He gives to them. Look at verse 7. He contributed to the lay people the animals needed. 30,000 young goats and lambs and 3,000 bulls. Think about how much that cost. 
Look at his sacrificial heart. And his example stirs up the officials in Israel, which stirs up the priests and the Levites in Israel to just keep giving more. Passover can now be celebrated because the leaders provide the lambs, the goats, the bulls. Now certainly we're to see here the generosity of the king. And we're to learn that leaders model godliness. Spiritual leaders sacrifice for those that they lead. Spiritual leaders are willing to spend themselves at great cost to themselves. This is an imitate me as I imitate Christ principle. Don't we see that in the Apostle Paul? He shows the people how to work, how to live for Jesus, how to find contentment, how to fight sin, how to sacrifice, how to press toward the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. That is the way you must walk. And if you're a leader here, you must be an example. And yet there's also a danger, a subtle danger, as Josiah and these other leaders give the people their sacrifices. It's the principle, I think we can see, when David purchases the place where the temple will be set up. He's offered it for free. But he won't sacrifice to the Lord what costs him nothing. If the people don't serve the Lord at cost to themselves, they're in danger of going to the feast and enjoying all the benefits, but not keeping it up. They see Josiah's earnest devotion, but it's going to be abundantly evident in the next chapter, they're not devoted at all. Yes, a leader must sacrifice to serve the people, but he can't do everything for the people. The people must seek God. The people must give of themselves. Their time, their money, their energy. If they just go along as long as the leader is leading, eventually they're just going to be lukewarm to the things of God. Maybe I can put the application to parents. There's a temptation in instructing your children to tell them everything and to give them all the answers. But then as they come into their later years to just keep telling them everything and giving them all the answers rather than moving to asking questions and probing their heart and make them articulate what they believe. We can't walk the walk for them we model it, and then we urge them to put forth their own spiritual efforts. Well, that's what the people are going to lack here, and they're going to fail. Well, this point has really already gone on long enough. Let me just make one more little observation of the text so many things could be said. Notice the sacrifice itself. Verse 11, the priests and the Levites, they slaughter the Passover of the Lamb. The priests are throwing the blood that they received while the Levites flayed the sacrifice. And verse 14 tells us when they were doing this and distributing the lambs to roast, that they were doing it all until night. Just think of that. If we do the math, 37,600 lambs and goats and 3,800 bulls were sacrificed that day. Can you imagine the blood spilt? Can you imagine the signs of death and the smell? And all this is done just at one Passover. Recognizing that God has graciously given a substitute to die the death that we should die. That we can get blessing, a celebration of a meal instead of curse. The author tells us a celebration hasn't been like this since the days of Samuel. But amidst all the blood shed, we know that you're supposed to do it again next year. And the next year. And the next year. And that doesn't count 
the other mandatory feasts or the Day of Atonement or the sacrifices to be made at the temple every single day, morning and evening. So while Josiah models faithfulness, this is surely a reminder to us of the great cost of our redemption. And it should show us the majesty and beauty of having one great high priest who sacrifices himself, Jesus Christ. What all these lambs and goats and bulls could never do take away sin, Jesus does in His once-for-all death. Hearing these numbers should make us thankful for Jesus Christ. We don't have to come and offer a fresh kill. We come dependent upon Christ alone. And that means we're shed. I mean, the blood that He shed cleanses us forever. Nothing else needs to be done. It's all reliance upon Jesus. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And that draws us near to God with gratefulness. Look at the great gift that God has given that we could know the Lord and be cleansed forever. But then we move from this great day, secondly, to a grievous end. Verse 20, after all this, all Josiah's reforms, trouble comes. Pharaoh Necho happens to be skirting Judah on the west. Uh, he's on his way kind of up by the Mediterranean Sea as we would know it, heading to join Assyria, <clears throat> to join Assyria as they would fight against Babylon. The Babylonian Empire is on the rise. They had actually whipped Assyria at Nineveh in 612 BC and captured the city. Assyria falls back to Haran and Babylon whips them there. And now Assyria has fallen back to Carchemish. And Egypt is going to help them out I'm sure in a self-serving way, to make sure Babylon doesn't crush their interests. Well, for reasons that are unspecified, Josiah, verse 20 at the end, went out to meet Necho. Necho catches wind that Josiah is coming out to fight him. So he says, he sends an appeal, verse 21, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war. But then the message gets interesting. Pharaoh says, God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God, Josiah, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now, Pharaoh doesn't use the covenant name here, Yahweh. He uses another name for God, but it's not just the generic name El, which is sometimes used and prominent in Mesopotamia. He uses the name Elohim, which is the Creator God from Genesis 1. A little tidbit you need to understand. Elohim is a plural noun with hints of the Trinity. But when talking about the true God, the God of Israel, Elohim takes a singular verb. We don't say they is, right? So there's the God who is plural who yet takes a singular verb. In the beginning, God, the plural God, He, singular, created. Well, that happens here in this reference. Pharaoh doesn't say, the gods, plural, they have commanded me. He says, Elohim, plural name, yes, but he, singular, has commanded me. Now, pagans are occasionally found speaking as though they are declaring what God wants. Sennacherib did that with Hezekiah. Pagans are also found being led by God to accomplish his will. Balaam, blessing Israel. King Cyrus of Persia setting the exiles free. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that Pharaoh Necho is telling the truth. God, Elohim, the one true God, has commanded me, and God is with me. And if you oppose me, 
Josiah, you're opposing God. Well, it's pretty obvious Josiah doesn't believe that. He doesn't listen, and he wants to fight with Necho anyway. But the chronicler wants you to see that this was wrong. Look at verse 22. Josiah is blamed for failing to listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God. And there on the plain of Megiddo, Josiah is wounded in battle by archers and he dies. He's 39 years old. He had been up to this point doing what was right. And then the Lord takes Josiah off the scene. What are we to make of this? Indeed, maybe you're wondering to yourself, how in the world could Josiah have discerned that the pagan king of Egypt is speaking God's word to him? That he has no business in this fight? Well, Proverbs does warn us generally about the danger in meddling in a quarrel that is not your own. It's like a passerby grabbing a dog by the ears. Not a good idea. But it's obvious, for some reason, Josiah felt compelled to engage in this fight. Was it because of the old animosity with Egypt? Did he think if Egypt joined up with Assyria, his land would be attacked later? Better to tackle Egypt by themselves than Egypt and Assyria both? Or was Josiah trying to get on Babylon's good side? If I attack and win this battle, then Babylon won't cause me trouble. We really can't know the answer because the text doesn't tell us. We don't get inside information. But I do want you to note what it doesn't say. It doesn't tell us that Josiah is found praying. It doesn't tell us he's found seeking the Lord about what to do. This man who sought God earnestly before is not seeking God here at all before he marches out or after he hears the message from the Pharaoh saying, God told me to do this and you would be opposing God. Indeed, the man who's been so submissive to the word previously, even the word of an unlikely prophetess, Hulda, the wife of the laundromat owner, here Josiah doesn't consider the word. He just ignores it. But there's evidence in the text that Josiah suspected that Pharaoh Necho did speak the word of God. How so? Well, when he goes into battle, verse 22, what did he do? He disguised himself. Why do you do that unless you think you're outsmarting someone? And indeed, it should remind you of another king we've read about who heard the word of God declaring his condemnation, ignored it, and went into battle in disguise. You remember who it is? Ahab. Ahab thought he could outsmart God by disguising himself in battle. He thought he could get around the Word of God if he pretended that he wasn't the king. Josiah, brethren, here is aping Ahab. And just like Ahab, who was struck with an arrow at random in between his armor, said to his servants, put me in the chariot, get me out of the battle because I'm wounded, and he died in his chariot. All of that happens with Josiah. This is a deliberate echo of Ahab's God-ignoring ways. And that means the chronicler is saying, Josiah should have known better. He's acting in this moment like a spiritually deaf, God-resisting, prideful king, and God opposes the proud. What a terrible ending for King Josiah. Now it's true what was predicted, Josiah will die here without seeing the coming disaster in Jerusalem. That's the promise he had been given. But he's still struck down. Brethren, when the Lord isn't sought, when the Lord isn't heeded, 
when men do what is right in their own eyes, trouble always looms. And this is the kind of trouble we're seeing here with Josiah. It tells us immediately, doesn't it? That we need a better king. We need a king who never fails to listen. Who always follows God's word. Even if the word is through a wicked man. When Caiaphas in John 11 says that Jesus should die because it's better that one man die for the nation. He was talking about it's better that the Romans kill him than come and kill the rest of us. But John says he was prophesying that Jesus would die. And Jesus doesn't try to resist that hard word. He submits. That's the king we need. A flawless king who does what God says. But what a warning this text is to us. You can be a God-fearing, reform-seeking, generally holy person and still stumble in a major way. Even those who seek God throughout the course of their life can fail to listen to God in a particular time. The godly are prone to be rash. The godly can act with presumption. The godly must learn to put their thoughts and their actions before the Lord and wait upon Him. Don't trust in your own heart. Trust the Lord. Go His way. Don't listen to the inclinations of your own flesh. This is a grievous scene. But it doesn't undermine all that Josiah had accomplished in his reign. He didn't have his best day on his last day. But Jeremiah the prophet still sings a lament and teaches Israel to lament the king. And we're told at the end that Josiah's good deeds have been recalled according to what is written in the law of the Lord. In other words, this bad day doesn't cloud all that Josiah had done previously. What an encouragement that should be to us. The Lord remembers Josiah's faithful acts and heart of devotion even though he dies doing something stupid. Brethren, praise the Lord that our sin at the end of our life doesn't eliminate a life that has been lived in faithfulness to God. You're not dependent on how you did today and how you did the next day. As if you've got to start over afresh with the Lord. Now, if you're the Lord's, you're the Lord's. And He washes you of sin. However, let us not soothe our conscience with the thought that if we don't listen to God and we fail to pray to God, God will show us His favor anyway. That's a lawless mindset. Has grace abounded to you so that you might run on in your sin? No, you died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? We've been rescued from Jesus. We don't want to contaminate our lives with sin. We want sin never to reign over us. We don't want to be found on the last day of our lives not listening to God's Word. So brethren, this is a warning. And it's a simple one. Seek the Lord always. Strive to live so that you can die well. Walk cautiously. Live carefully. Pray earnestly that you can discern how the Lord would have you to go. And may the Lord help us to prepare not only to celebrate a feast in one day, but to prepare all of our lives to meet Him at the end. Brother, let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank You, O Lord, that Your Word offers us so much instruction that is a positive example to us and a negative example to us. Lord, we pray that we would heed the words of the past because these things are written for our instruction. And we ask, O Lord, that You would keep our hearts. Make us soft to Your Word that we would listen to it, even if it comes from an unlikely source. Lord, we pray with thankfulness also that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to hide all of our transgressions from view. We praise You for Christ and His cleansing. And we pray all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.